Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Brandon. Uh, I serve as the lead pastor here. I'm so glad to have you uh, with us this morning to worship Jesus. Uh, I have on the stage with me uh, Miss Hannah Anderson, uh, Mrs. Hannah Anderson. She is a friend. Uh, many of you know who she was our visiting teacher during some of COVID, is an author and a theologian, and just have been a great uh, ally to our church over the years. And uh, if you're new to SOMA and uh, kind of how we do teaching here, uh, just a quick little explanation. Um, we as elders uh, are responsible for what we call the capital T teaching of the church, which is basically our statement of faith and making sure that what we teach is aligned and, and is orthodox. Uh, and so that is, that's our charge and responsibility. Most of the time on Sundays, uh, we, we have the privilege of teaching here, but it's not exclusively, this space is not exclusively for elders. We love to be able to open up room for gifted men and women, both inside and outside of our church, to engage in what we call lowercase t teaching, which Colossians says we're to teach one another. And so as Christians, we have the privilege of being able to speak and explain and apply God's word to each other. And that's for all Christians um, with the spirit of God who are mature, uh, or at least in the process of becoming mature and like Jesus. And so uh, I'm, I'm happy to be able to teach alongside Hannah and welcome her uh, this morning. And so um, we're going to be teaching together. I'll start us off and close us, and Hannah will be taking the middle there. Um, Let's just take a moment as we get into our text here to put our stuff aside and just uh, spend a moment of quiet to ask God to, to speak to us. And so, again, I know we just we come into the space um, anxious, right, carrying just lots of stuff from our week internally, different things happening to us externally. And so we just want to take a moment to pause, to take a deep breath, and just to ask God to speak and remove any barriers to us hearing his voice together. And so let's just take a moment, take a deep breath in and breathe in the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus who's invited you here to listen to him and to respond to him this morning. And let's breathe out all those cares and concerns and worries. Let's take a moment to pray quietly and then I'll I'll lead us in a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder that in you we live and move and have our being. You're our creator. You've made us for yourself. And you long to redeem us, to restore us back to a relationship with you through Jesus. And so would you just open up our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our imaginations to the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his kingdom that's breaking into the world even as we speak and as we sing this morning. It is a reality that is around us and in us and is moving through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands that are ready to respond um, to what you invite us into this morning. We love you and we trust you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a little thought experiment. Um, and I'm going to assume... Uh, we're not going to have the debate about if aliens are real, but let's just uh, assume you were an alien, uh, and, and they're real, and you moved, uh, you, you came to Earth, we just watched War of the Worlds, this is like fresh in my mind, uh, some of my kids watched War of the Worlds this week, 
you know, lame, yeah, lame Tom Cruise movie, but um, I'm a Louisville guy. Tom's from Louisville, so I got to watch Tom Cruise movies. Um, so aliens come to, this, uh, come to the earth, and they're, they're new to Indianapolis, and they're, they're walking around or floating around or whatever they do, and they're uh, discerning what's happening in the city and trying to figure out what is the city value? What's the city about? What do they, what do they love? What's important here? Um, what, what would they see? What would you see? Some of you are here and you've grown up here and it's hard for you. You're like the proverbial fish in the water. It's hard for you to understand Indy because you've, this is all you've ever known. Uh, 10 years ago, my family moved here from South Florida. We grew up in Louisville. Um, we were new to the city, called to plant a church here. And we had that kind of opportunity to step into the city and to see it with fresh eyes. I, I grew up kind of coming up here for like football games and things. Uh, when they used to have the marshmallow RCA dome uh, for the Colts, but like I really didn't know the city, and so my wife and I drive up here. James, our oldest, who was playing this morning, was 10 months old, um, and our car breaks down on 65. First off, so I was like, I don't like this city already. I, I I grew up in Louisville, south of the Ohio, and this is like confirming all my prejudices and all my stereotypes. Uh, this city is, you know, God forsaken. Our car's broken down, you know, so. Two speeding tickets later, while I'm trying to like get my family, go to the airport, speeding back to get them, uh, we end up in a, a hotel down off IUPUI's campus, and we spent some time literally just walking the city. And it was interesting kind of seeing it with fresh eyes. You know, again, if you're not from here, maybe you're an alien, doesn't know anything about Earth, you, you begin to notice, oh, there's like these big temples, right? There's a temple that says cults, some animal, a temple to some animal where they sacrifice or something, you know, 60,000 people screaming and making sacrifices in here. And you see big, you know, buildings with like financial uh, names on them. They must really value money and wealth and, uh, and that kind of thing. And there's big universities, that, you know, value education. And there's people who seem to have no homes that are walking around downtown, um, not being cared for, being ignored. Like there seems to be disparities. You know, there's all these things you could kind of notice and it, and it does something to you. It, it provokes a certain kind of response and reaction and and for us, coming in from the outside, it was, it, was such a, it was such an opportunity to orient ourselves to this reality of what it would be like to be a pastor here and to try to bring the good news of Jesus here, as many people have done you know, over the years that Indiana has been a state and Indianapolis has been a place. And, and I, 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 that, this story in, in, in Acts 17 has been a really helpful one for me to enter into Paul's journey and to see my own journey, our own journey in this, because that's essentially what Paul was doing uh, in Athens. He comes into the city, verse 16, he's waiting for some friends to come and join him, and it says he's deeply distressed because he saw that the city, Athens, was literally submerged in idols, and not just temples and physical idols, but ideologies, right? Certain philosophies of life that claim, that claim to be the way that we live a good life. And this word deeply distressed here uh, is this word. I want to throw up the picture just to remind us again on the screen where we're at in, in, in Paul's journey, if you remember, just to again locate us. He's all the way over here in Achaia, the green. Uh, he's come from Thessalonica and Bria down to Athens. And he's deeply distressed. This word means, literally, it's a medical word that means seizure. He's seized. Um, it's a word that's used of God in the Old Testament to talk about being provoked, I would call this uh, Paul really being struck with a burden for this city, right? He begins to see the city the way that God sees the city. He feels what God feels, and he begins to do what, what God does, what Jesus did, which is to proclaim the good news in the city. 
Again, Athens, uh, we know, was the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, right? It's kind of the cultural center within the larger cultural center of Rome and the larger Roman Empire. So it says, verse 17, he reasons in the synagogue. We talked about this reasoning last week. And again, next slide. Um, this, this reasoning was Paul, it's the word dialogue. It's, it's basically Socratic reasoning. Paul enters in and he's having a dialogue with the city. He's asking questions. He's seeking to understand and preach the good news of Jesus. And he does that differently in different contexts. And I just, I'm always amazed at Paul's flexibility to do that. And he goes right into the heart of the culture, right? He reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace. That word marketplace is the word agora, right? The marketplace is the, the center of the city where everything comes together. The arts come together with politics and finance and media and all the academic institutions all come together in the agora. There's a picture, next slide, of the agora, the ancient ruins of the agora. And so Paul goes in there to, to reason, and he encounters two of the most famous philosophical schools or some representatives from those schools, the Epicureans, which essentially the Epicureans believed in God, but the gods were distant. And so they basically said, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with us. They've left us here. So let's not worry about death. Let's not worry about the afterlife. Let's not worry about the transcendent. Let's just be mindful and be present and show up and just basically live a life of pleasure, right? Their whole pursuit was that of pleasure and tranquility and peace. Let's not concern ourselves with bigger issues. You know, let's just stay focused on what it looks like to show up and live an embodied life of fun and pleasure and kind of self-sufficiency, right? And so that's, that's the Epicureans. The Stoics, on the other hand, were kind of the opposite. Uh, they were the moral philosophers of their day. They believed that God was kind of the soul of the world, that we literally live and move and have our being in God, but in this very kind of pantheistic uh, way. But they're very moral. They were committed to virtue and to justice and to a sense of duty. They wanted to be good people, good citizens. And, and they were really focused, what they're most famously known for. So the Stoics would include, um, you know, Marcus Aurelius would include uh, Seneca, some of the more famous uh, examples. Stoicism is making a huge comeback right now, and if you know this, but if you've read any of Ryan Holiday's stuff, The uh, Obstacle is the Way, he's a bestseller on, on uh, Amazon. Uh, that's, that's the modern-day version of Stoicism. And they were big on detachment, right? Like, let's not allow emotion and suffering to kind of uh, put us sideways. Let's, dis let's detach ourselves, and let's focus on living a rational life, right? That's essentially uh, kind of the key focus for a Stoic. And so these were the two major philosophies, and Paul engages them with the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And they, they had this great line in verse 18. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Literally, the language is, what is this seed picker doing, right? It's, it's an Athenian kind of diss, right? So Paul just got dissed. If this were like a rap battle, Paul just got dissed. Um, and, and, he's, and, and basically, the idea of a seed picker is a person who goes around uh, a bird that would go around and pick up various seeds and then kind of pull them together. So they're saying Paul's like kind of taking this stuff and showing up with it half-baked and trying to pass it for religion. And so um, they took him in verse 19, and they brought him to the Areopagus, uh, this word Areopagus, it's, it's the court uh, which exercised jurisdiction in the matters of like religion and, and morals. And they take Paul to, it's called, it's technically the hill of Ares, the god of war. And they say, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing 
something new. So you have this space where people are coming together, they're thinking, they're talking, they're discussing. Think of this like Twitter, uh, social media, right? They're thinking, they're doing this stuff, but there's not any action, there's not any movement uh, happening. And so this is kind of the context within which Paul then gives his speech. Verse 21 is so telling and for me so recognizable. They spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Um, if you know me or you know my writing, you'll know I do spend a lot of time on Twitter. Thank you very much. <laughs> it is fascinating that that app is, the logo is a bird. And from here on out, I will think of it as the seed picker app where people are just going about and, and snatching little bits of information enough we think, to have a conversation or at least a fight. Um, and this, this milieu of just always spending our time with nothing else but telling and hearing something new. And it's fascinating, this context, and it's very, it, it feels very familiar to me because this is the digital age that we live in. This is social media. Um, we live in a moment of time where we have this boom of information. And we have access to ideas that we didn't even know existed because we just could not have found them in previous generations. Not that the ideas are new, but our ability to find them or to be exposed to them is somewhat new. So, so we live in a, in a moment of time with a great deal of information, a lot of access to ideas, increased conversation, which ironically has not resulted in greater clarity or understanding. It has not brought us to a place of we have more information, but perhaps not any more wisdom. And so we exist in this moment in time very much like what was happening at the top of the Oropagus. We're just telling or hearing something new. And in that space, there's a kind of cultural phenomenon, and it's almost a psychological phenomenon that comes to bear where we just end up talking about talking. We just end up commenting on each other's commentary. And you know, a simple illustration of this is we have more commenters than we have journalists anymore, right? And authors, um, you know, not to draw attention to anyone in the room, become content creators. I spend more time talking about things that are online than I do writing books, which is not a good thing. And so we live in this space where it's almost looping. The ideas are just swirling and we're caught in the middle of them. And, and what's terrible about that is with so many ideas on the table, we don't seem to be able to share any categories with other people. And, and so what we do is when we find people that, that do share our opinions, we end up in these tribal categories, right? And we become part of these schools of thought and we become isolated from each other. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so Paul does this ingenious thing when he steps up to speak. He calls them to the categories they did share in common. Now, he had to drill down very, very far to find them. But he appeals to them based on shared categories of creation, the natural world, and general revelation. And I just want to make a, a comment on what we mean when we say general revelation. 
General revelation is the counterpart to specific revelation. And it is the ways that God reveals himself to human beings. God reveals himself through the scripture. That's what we would call specific revelation. That the, the word of the Lord came to specific people to teach very specific things. And it has been recorded for us. And we have that in our scripture. That's specific revelation. General revelation are all the categories and the truth that is accessible to everyone regardless of whether they believe the Bible or not. What's fascinating about Paul's approach here is he doesn't rely on specific revelation. Now, ideally, general revelation and specific revelation act like two hands. They work together, and they support each other, and they interact with each other. But in a world where there is a loss of categories, when we're so often speaking past each other, we're going to have to learn something from what Paul does here. And so he starts with what they do share. What can we agree upon? Now, one thing that all of the philosophers could agree upon is that there was a source of life. And at least at this point, they all understood that source of life to be a creator God who was a deity of some kind. Now, that may not be the case in our modern world. We don't all have that shared category. But for the Athenians, there was a sense that there was a God who was a source of life. They even had an altar to him, to the unknown God. And that's where Paul starts. He's like, oh, that's something we can agree upon. Let's start there. There is a source of life, and it is this God who made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. So he starts with the assumption, we all agree that there's a source of life, there's a creator God, but I'm going to push you just a little bit farther. Can we agree that this creator God is transcendent? Can we agree that he does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things? Essentially, what Paul is arguing is if there is a God who made everything, then he's not going to be part of the thing he made. He's going to be beyond it. He is going to be transcendent. And that would have really resonated for the Stoics with their love of moral order and virtue and coming up to um, this God who was larger than everyone else. But here's the fascinating thing. Paul pushes them one step further. So we all agree there's a creator God from whom the world and life comes from. He is transcendent. He's not found in shrines. He can't be embodied in idols of creatures. But he's not far away from us. He's involved in our embodied life. He's involved in the history of humanity. For from one man, this is verse 26, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. So Paul appeals to human history and providence and says there is a hand behind everything that we know that has happened. There's an invisible hand. But in verse 27, he says there's a reason for this. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. Here's the kicker. 
though he is not far from each one of us. So this God who gave us life is transcendent as we would hope God's would be, but he's also involved in our lives, and he's involved in our search for him. It's not just that he's moving history in a certain way. He's arranging history, both our larger collective history and our personal histories, to guide us to himself. Why else do you think you're asking these questions? See, we think our search for God originates from our curiosity or even our integrity. But so often there are things that have come along and happened within our lives that have driven us to a point of questioning. And if you look back on your own faith journey, you can see those markers where God has been moving and even to the place where you lived that there would be someone that you would encounter that would have a conversation and guide you on this search. And I think this has an implication for us as we hope to speak into our communities and into our relationships. We must assume that people are seeking God, that people are honestly, for all of the ways we go about it, whether it's our philosophies or theories or self-help, even our political allegiances or our work, all of this is a way that we're trying to find goodness in life. We're trying to find our purpose. We're trying to find meaning. So we don't enter into a space where people don't care about these questions. They do. We also don't enter into a space where God is not already at work. This is not dependent on us. We are entering into something that God is already doing in 100,000 different ways in individual lives and in the collective. And so this changes the way we enter into conversation with people, but it also changes how we pray for them. And there's a particular prayer I came across recently in um, common worship of the Church of England, and, and I found this expression so striking. We pray for those who do not believe but who long to know you, the very word of life. And so as Paul is entering into this space that's swirling with ideals and conflicting opinions, he enters in with compassion and solidarity to say, we all are looking for this thing, but even better than that, God is near and close, and he is guiding us to himself. He's already revealing himself through the natural world. This is why Paul appeals to creation, that there is something about just the existence of this world that tells us that God exists. He is the creator. This is the testimony of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's the testimony of Job in chapter 12, where he says, ask the animals and they will tell you that the Lord has done this. But beyond that, he presses them and he says, but it's not just creation. It's not just what's happening out there that you can observe beyond you. He's revealing himself in your existence, in your life. For in him, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. There's an interesting thing that happens, a phenomenon that happens in the modern world where we're very detached from the natural world around us. And we tend to think of the natural world as something out there. 
But the truth is that our bodies and our minds and our existence as human beings are part of that creation. And in many ways, our existence, our very life testifies to God. And so there is something essential to the human experience that is going to seek out its source of life. And it's going to do it. It's so foundational that even people who don't claim to to be religious are actually seeking that out. As Paul quotes from their poets, we are also his offspring. And so we see this search revealed not just in the natural world, not just in our own lives, but we see it in things like human reasoning and philosophy and art. Because here's the fascinating thing. It's very explicit in the scripture in verse 28 that Paul is quoting a Greek poet, for we are also his offspring. It says it explicitly. This was the poet Erotus. But earlier in his address to the Athenians, he had also quoted other poets. In him we live and move and have our being. You may have encountered it the first time in this passage of scripture, but it was, also, it was actually written by Epimenides, a Greek poet and philosopher. And so when Paul drops that in, he's using a common category. He's using a language they understand. And so he has credibility with them. God does not live in temples made with human hands is another quote from Herodotus. And so Paul is building out this rationale that the thing that we are all searching for isn't just something that he is coming and presenting as this obscure teaching, that this is what all of us are wrestling toward. And as part of the creation, we ourselves, whether we want to or not, are revealing our creator simply by the search. What's interesting about this is that you don't have any interruption of Paul's address. He's allowed to go on and on and on, and so far it seems like the people are tracking with him. Yes, I will agree, there is a source of life outside of me. Yes, it must be a God who is outside of his creation because how else could he make it? Yes, he doesn't dwell in shrines, okay? Yes, I I know that something deep about my existence and my personal experience must be tied to him. Okay, this is all tracking. But then Paul begins to break away from the shared categories. And he begins to challenge a little bit more. And we see that challenge begin at the end of verse 29, where he reiterates that the divine can't be like an image fashioned by human art which, again, the Stoics would have agreed with, that that it was more an ideal. But then he adds this, not by human art and imagination. And that category of imagination, or what our mind can conceive, Paul begins to press into them. The struggle with trying to rationalize our way to God is that our minds cannot conceive of a God that conceived of us. And our minds alone, as important as reason is to this process, our minds alone cannot reach the divine. We can't even imagine what he is like. And so there's a point where we're going to have to come to the end of our thinking. 
And this is challenging for us because I think a lot of times, at least in my life, I want to hold off any kind of response until I understand. I can't move forward until I understand. But the challenge of faith is that you're never going to understand this God, not in all the fullness of who he is. And so we're going to have to step away from that cycle of reasoning, and it's hard because it's comforting. There's a sense where when we're talking about ideas and we're wrestling with things and we're moving in this space, it feels busy. It feels productive. But if you've been on Twitter, you know it's not. You know that we spend more time saying things about advocacy or justice than actually doing the work of justice. You know that words and ideas are cheap. And there has to come a moment when you move toward action. And so that's what Paul does. He says, now God is commanding something. Now God is commanding that all people everywhere repent. And they are to repent of not worshiping him as God. They are to repent of their idolatry. Now here's an interesting thing again. You don't see a response or a negative response to the call to repentance. Now, I have been taught that the call to repentance is what the offense of the gospel is. The people don't want to be told they're sinners. And so if we can just get people over the repentance hurdle, then they'll need Jesus and they'll embrace him. We love repenting. This whole society that we live in is one constant exercise in making ourselves better people. All of our philosophies, all of our theologies, all of our work is this process of trying to reform ourselves. So repentance is right up our alley, and it's what the philosophers would have loved too. You see, we live in a moment of cultural outrage that is constantly calling for change. What is repentance except change? We are, have this call to cultural purity, a constant call to repentance, a constant call to perpetual guilt, making yourself better, monitoring yourself to see if you're doing the right things, and living within a personal ethic that ultimately becomes very legalistic. Now, you may have encountered that in the church. But I want to tell you that it exists in the church because it exists everywhere else. It is not unique to the church, and in many ways, the reason it exists in the church is because the church failed to apply the truth of the gospel to a larger cultural love of personal reformation. So the call to repentance itself is not even offensive. What triggers them, what pushes them over, is the call to embrace resurrection life through Jesus Christ. Verse 30, 31. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, he has a provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them began to ridicule. 
Why is the resurrection challenging? Why is that the thing that pushes us? Now, we could talk about materialistic culture, we could talk about you know, this kind of scientism that we exist in, but that's not what they existed in. They had categories of transcendence. They had categories of immortality. So why is the resurrection offensive? I think it goes back to this idea that we're always going to embrace the message of works righteousness. Repentance alone is not problematic for us. We're always going to embrace self-improvement. And we're always going to find comfort in our thinking and overthinking and rethinking and sitting around and doing nothing but telling or hearing something new. But what we struggle with in the resurrection is its simplicity. At the end of the day, despite our best efforts, despite all of our reasoning, despite all of our conversations, all of our actions, all of our reforms, at the end of the day, you are dependent on the God who made you. You are going to die, and at that point, your only hope is going to be the creator who gave you life in the first place. The one who made you is the one who will remake you. And so when you're staring death in the face, you have no other option. All your thinking, all your reform can't keep you safe. But your creator can. And your creator has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is now being lifted up, worthy of honor, worthy of worship. Paul brings this together in another epistle to um, the Colossians in chapter 1. And he speaks of Jesus this way, bringing all of these threads together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have first place in everything. And that was who Paul was calling them to worship. He was calling them to worship their creator revealed through Jesus Christ. He was calling them away from self-dependence to dependence on their creator, not just for this life, but the one to come. So how might God be <clears throat> inviting us to respond now? As we consider some of the invitations, there's many, but I just want to draw out two for us as we think about our lives right now. This passage, one, is, is to those who might be seeking, um, or maybe you have friends who are seeking, um, that, that are longing uh, to find God but don't know where to find Him, um, and maybe are confused or doubting or skeptical. And the other uh, is for us as, as kind of Christians trying to proclaim this good news. Uh, one invitation, I think, is for us, as we learn from Paul here. So to those who, if you notice how this passage ends in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection, some began to ridicule, right? Like some will mock, some will be cynical, some will not believe. But also notice, others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. And then some believed. There's a curiosity and an openness 
and a process, right? They don't believe immediately, but they, their, their curiosity is piqued, and they enter into conversation, and we have to suspect embodied community with Paul and Timothy and Silas in the church to say, how do we, how do we continue to search this out? And you might be looking at this passage, and you're like, I'm not a philosopher, right? I'm not into stoicism. I don't even know what all that means. Like, how does this relate to where I find myself? But the reality is we're all philosophers. When you think about the purpose and the point of philosophy, the word philosophy, right? You all took philosophy 101, means a lover of wisdom, right? The goal of philosophy was to identify what does it look like to live a good life? In the midst of all the brokenness of the world and all that, that's wrong with our world, how do we build a life? It's not just about ideas, but how do we actually build a life that is satisfying and leads us to flourishing, right? And, and all of us have an answer for that, um, and all of us are looking for that. The, the question is, are we aware of how we're doing that, right? Many of us, we don't have a, a comprehensive, a coherent philosophy, we're, we're, we are like seed pickers. We are gathering bits and fragments from different, maybe cultural influencers, right? There's all kinds of philosophers around us. Like, what is social media except a bunch of people trying to be philosophers, right? We have philosophers of finance, right? Maybe yours is Warren Buffett. We have philosophers of business, Ray Dalio or whatever. We've got, uh, you know, philosophers who are trying to sell uh, product to us. We have philosophers trying to teach us about all kinds of things, um, you know, uh, we've said this before, but like, you know, for some of us, maybe it's a, it's, it's a Joe Rogan, you know, and he's like our life philosopher. Uh, for others of us, maybe it's some social media influencer. But we are all looking to these gurus to try to help us figure out a, a way to live in the world and to navigate reality. But it doesn't work apart from Jesus. And so if you're here and you're skeptical and you find yourself curious uh, historians tell us that one of the reasons that Christianity swept through the Roman Empire is because it, it worked. It was a philosophy of life. It actually worked in real life <laughs> in ways that the other ideolo- ideologies of the time didn't. Epicurean philosophy and Stoicism left people basically empty, right? It left them feeling alone to pursue pleasure on their own or just to detach from life. There's no answer for life at the end. And that, that idea that, you know, beyond death, there's nothing, it created a sort of anxiety that didn't answer the deepest questions of life and actually led to not more happiness and freedom, but less. It was a kind of slavery, intellectually and existentially. And so in that, into that gap, the good news of the kingdom of God comes and begins to say, you're, you're looking for something, you're seeking something, but don't seek it the way that you're seeking it. Seek it in Jesus. And so I think the first step for us, if we find ourselves there, is just to look at our life and to say, is this thing that I say that I believe actually working for me, right? And if it's not working, then I need to step back and say, how, how have I constructed a reality that is not reality at all? It's not actually bringing life at all. It's actually creating more anxiety, right? Because that, that's the nature of ideologies. They always fail us, right? Because they're built around the self. I mean, that's, that's the main idol in Athens. It's the idol of the self, right? When, when we feel anxious and when we feel like we don't have the answers, we seek to build reality in such a way to buffer this anxiety. We build a stronghold of the self. We build an idol. We trust ourselves. And the reality is the older you get, you realize that's, that doesn't work. And so there's an invitation to step back and say, where have I traded the true knowledge of God for a sort of idolatry 
that I've created for myself. I'm trusting in my own ability to figure life out. I'm trusting in these influencers. I'm trusting in this education, this philosophy, or whatever. And I think that's just an invitation to be curious and just to ask honest questions and to seek honest answers for those things where it's easy to get sidetracked and go, what about this? And what about this? And what about this cultural issue? But the real answer is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What do you do with the resurrection? What do you do with the cross? What do you do with Jesus's life, death, and resurrection? And how do we find truth? So that's for, I think, the the curious among us. We want this to be a safe place to be able to wrestle. And then the other thing I hope that we see as Christians who, like Paul, are entering into our cities, hopefully seeking to bring the good news that's transformed us into our neighborhoods, into our communities. The thing I just leave this passage with, and I've, I've preached this passage many times, and the thing I'm just always inspired by is the, the burden that Paul carries for his city, right? As a missionary, Paul has a deep burden for these people he doesn't even know, right? He didn't grow up here. He didn't go to these schools. He didn't go to these institutions, right? Like, but he has this burden. He's, he's distressed. He's provoked. He's jealous for them to know Jesus, right? Like there's this deep, deep burden, but it's not a burden that's driven by anxiety and reactivity, right? It's not a burden that leads him to be anxious, a burden that leads him to, um, to be, you know, like angry uh, or a defensive or withdrawing. It, it allows Paul to enter in in just a calm way and like engage. He can affirm those things that need to be affirmed and say, yes, I see that you're seeking God, but you're seeking him in the wrong places. And let me show you how Jesus fulfills those deep longings that you have. So it it allows him to affirm and yet confront at the same time with a kind of calm, non-anxious presence, right? Like, I'm just so stirred by that. Like, he has this burden. Like, a burden is just, I think, a deep stirring for a better story, the story of Jesus, to be known and to enter into the imagination, the hearts, the souls, the bodies of our friends, neighbors, and coworkers, such that it it changes them. And that kind of non-anxious presence allows us to be curious. It allows us to have compassion while also having conviction, right? We can enter into our cities and see our cities differently, right? Like our cities are full of both Christians and non-Christians who enter into the city as critics, just deconstructing and tearing down and criticizing the city. Um, and, And some of us find ourselves maybe in that place. We see all the bad, but we can't affirm any of the good things that God's doing. For many of us, probably it's more the opposite posture of being a consumer. We enter into the city, uh, and we just use the city for our own selfish purposes. We're here, and we're doing the same things our non-Christian neighbors are doing. But there's a third way, I think, that we see with Paul, is that he enters into the city as kind of a rebuilder, right? As one who's entering in with a faithful presence, and he sees the city as God sees the city, right? That's the parallel in the language. He sees it as God sees the city, full of idolatry, but full of image bearers whom he longs to redeem. He feels what God feels for the city, and that allows him to do what God did, to proclaim the good news. That's what I want for us as Christians. That's what I want our church to be about, to be a faithful presence, carrying a burden, walking our neighborhoods, walking our streets, right? Like existing in the spaces in which God has called us to inhabit, to be the good news for our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors. The only hope that we have, that I think what made Paul able to do that so well is that he carried that resurrection hope, right? He proclaimed it and he lived it. The resurrection was not just good news that one day when you die, you get to go to heaven and be with God and have your sins forgiven. 
The resurrection, remember, in the preaching and, uh, and the demonstration of that in Jesus and the apostles was like a hyperlink for a new world. Right? It was a new world, a new creation that God was bringing into this world, starting with Jesus and then continuing in the life of his apostles. It's a, it's a new world with a new identity, new hope, a new power, a new everything. And that's, that enabled Paul to be a non-anxious presence. Right? I don't have to freak out. I don't have to lose my mind. I don't have to be crazy. I can trust that God in his timing and his providence is bringing the renewal of all things. And that's what we celebrate, friends, every week in communion. We come to this table, we take the cup, and we say, Jesus, your blood was spilled so that I could be forgiven, so I could be healed, and so that I can experience the freedom and the joy of being a follower of Jesus. Your body was broken. Your blood was shed for me so that I could experience that resurrection hope and that resurrection life. That's the only hope that we have to be this kind of a presence, right? Because Paul is not doing anything that Jesus didn't do, right? He enters into the city, With sacrificial love, he lays down his life, and he becomes a resurrection hope for Jerusalem. And then he says, go, be my disciples. He invites around him a community of disciples. He says, go, be my transforming presence in your communities. I want you to do exactly what I did. I want you to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. And what starts as derogatory, I think the irony of this passage, what starts as a derogatory, Paul, who's the seed picker over here, becomes a seed that's planted, and against all odds, right? Like nobody in this day would think that in just a few centuries, Christianity is sweeping the Roman Empire and goes all the way to the center of power and literally upends the Roman Empire with the revolutionary good news of Jesus. That's the kind of resurrection hope, friends, that we need in a moment that feels so scary, so anxious, so fearful, yet within that we see that God is seeding this moment with opportunities for renewal. And that's what we celebrate here in communion. So let me just pray for us. And I want us to take a moment to respond, just to get quiet and ask God where we need to respond, where God might be inviting us into an openness and a curiosity if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, inviting us into that burden to share his heart, to share his vision for our cities and to be proclaimers of this good news. Father, thank you for this invitation Thank you for this reminder as we come to communion that you have done everything that we cannot do for ourselves. So would you meet us in this place? Would you transform us? For those of us who are seeking, may we find you. May we find the end of all of our longings and all of our desires for wholeness and healing and the good life. God, may we see that you in Jesus Christ have come to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have died, to rise from the dead and to be our King, our Lord, our Savior, God to forgive us of our sins, but also to empower us to live a new life. That is the good news of your kingdom. You are coming again to do that in us and for us in Jesus. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, God, may we not just speak that good news, but embody that with a non-anxious burden as we go into our communities this week, as we walk our streets, as we live and eat food at our restaurants and drink our coffees and spend time with our families around dinner tables and our neighbors around dinner tables, God, may we just open up your kingdom and share in your burden to pray and to share and to witness to this reality to our friends so that they might have the opportunity to become family of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.